You are listening to the Conquering Everest podcast. This is episode 57. Welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. My name is Brian Talore, and I just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for choosing to spend a bit of your day here with me. Now, it's been a while since our last episode, but uh, nonetheless, here we are with episode 57. And, uh, you know, to be completely transparent and honest, uh, it may be a while before we get to episode 58. We're kind of, you know, we're in this phase of transition, we'll call it, with the Conquering Everest podcast. Uh, all of the current episodes will remain uh, online, uh, just trying to figure out what we're going to do in the next season of things. But today, let's focus on today and this episode, I have a great conversation with Maurice W. Dorsey, PhD. Maurice is an author of three books. His body of work centers around three African-American men who have overcome adversity in the forms of poverty, race, sexual orientation, sexual and or emotional abuse at home, school, church, and in their career. Each man achieves success utilizing different roads and methods. It's Maurice's hope that listeners will hear the actions associated with the word perseverance and gratitude. Here is Maurice's story. Maurice W. Dorsey, my friend, welcome to the Conquering Everest podcast. How have you been? I'm doing fine, Brian Tellum. Outstanding. We, we had a really good conversation, pre-show conversation, and um, there, there's a lot of layers to your story, so I'm anxious to get into that and share with our audience. But before we do that, um, if you just want to take a moment and introduce yourself to the listeners and uh, give them a little sneak peek into who Maurice is. Well, audience of Brian Teller, I'm, uh, I am 74 years old, and you're supposed to tell me that I look good for my age. He does not look uh, 74 if you're listening and, to this. <laughs> and I am uh, the author of three books, which I will share the details with you uh, in a few minutes. And um, uh, the books center around uh, Conquering Everest, which is the mm -hmm. title of this podcast or working title of this podcast for Brian. And it's the story of three African-American men who've had challenges in their life um, around the issues of race and sexual orientation uh, and a variety of other things that take place um, in the world in the world that we live in and how they were over to able to overcome their circumstances and rise to a place of excellence. And so um, prior to that, I worked for 42 years. I retired from the federal government, the United States Department of Agriculture, which was a very fulfilling career. Um, the first five years of my job, I changed around every year for about five years until I could find where I actually fit. Uh, but the bulk of my years have been in the field of education, secondary education, higher education. I've worked in junior colleges, four-year colleges, um, the federal, federal government. Um, I have a bachelor's in family and consumer science from the University of Maryland, uh, a master's from the Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore um, in arts and sciences, and then a second master's. Um, from Loyola College, a Jesuit school, also in Baltimore. Then I went back to the University of Maryland. So I'm single, I'm black, and I'm gay. 
<laughs> and you've had a busy, busy life with all of that. Uh, it sure sounds like it. Uh, yeah, like we were saying, if you're listening to the podcast, he says he's 74, but if you go over to the YouTube channel, um, you're going to think he's like 40 something because uh, he looks younger than me as far as no. I'm concerned. <laughs> but I, I Marie, just beg for compliment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all are, right? We all want those affirmations, but. Uh, Maurice, let's get into your story a little bit and talk about your motivations for the book and your life and just kind of how everything has come together to lead you to where you're at today. Well, happy to do that. Well, I, writing was not my expertise or training. It wasn't anything I went to school. I didn't study journalism or English. I wasn't trying to be um, a great poet or anything like that. But I had a mentor when I was quite young. His name was Henry Parks. And for those of you who lived on the, your listeners who live on the East Coast, I know you're in the Midwest, but mostly. But there was a, a product here called Park Sausage, and it was very popular up and down the Eastern seaboard. And um, Henry was 30 years older than me. He also was an African-American man. He had married, had two children. Uh, he grew up in poverty, uh, and, and his father, who was Henry Park Sr., moved the family to Dayton, Ohio, where he graduated high school at Roosevelt High School and subsequently went to the Ohio State University, and Jesse Owens happened to roommate. Um, of course, they had to, in those days, they had to live off of, they couldn't live in, on campus in the dormitory. But part of Henry's struggle was that he was born to poverty. He was African, he was born in 18, I mean, 1960. And so America hadn't progressed in terms of racial relationships as we have seen it today. And of course, as we know, a lot of progress that still needs to be made. So his father uh, put him to work at a very early age during this agricultural and farm work of which Henry had absolutely no interest in agriculture, farm work, or anything laborious. He wanted to use his heads, you know, academically because he was a smart man and a smart kid and then became a smart man. And um, so his father sort of always redirected him to come back home because there was his wife, his grandmother, Henry Park Sr.'s wife, his mother, and then his wife and two children. So he needed Henry, his son, to help work with him to build the farm and put food on the table. But Henry, again, as I said, had no interest in doing that. So, to, to, um, so when Henry got jobs to save money to go to Ohio State University, uh, his father took all of the money and spent it. So when it was time for him to matriculate into college, he had no money, but still persistent and determined to go to school, he went to Ohio State anyway, penniless, and begged for scholarship money and loans so that he could could go to school and of course this was in total defiance of his father you know be and in those days you respected your father and did what your father told you to do and and uh, uh, so what happened is he finished ohio state and he left ohio went to new york and he created a product called the joe lewis punch with box famous african-american boxer joe lewis but of course that failed and then he worked in public relations and public affairs, and that didn't really work uh, that well for New York. And then he met a businessman from Baltimore 
who named Willie Adams, who suggested that Henry come to Baltimore and work in the area of real estate. And so he did for a brief period of time. But of course, working in real estate didn't generate the kind of income that he wanted rapidly. So from a previous experience, he worked from a sausage company. So he took that idea and opened up his own sausage business, making the sausage at home and marketing it from the trunk of his car. And to make this long story shorter, he ended up being a multi-million dollar business. So when I graduate from undergraduate school at Maryland, I end up meeting him and he becomes a mentor of mine and he's 30 years older. And at this point, he's sunsetting his career and uh, I'm beginning to launch mine. So he was extremely helpful to me in terms of guiding me and helping me in in terms of the direction of where my skills, interests, and experience were, and then exposing me to a socioeconomic that African-American Blacks who had some level uh, had that I would never have been exposed to because I too was born poor, you know? So, So his success, which my book, which I will share with you, is called businessman first. I don't know if you, yeah, you can see yep, it. There it is. It's, um, it's an award-winning <laughs> book. It's been, it's won two awards, the Black Quarterly Review um, and the um, Independent Press Award. So I'm really pleased with this. This was my first book. And the reason why that book and my writing came into existence was when he was dying from Parkinson's. He said to me, Maurice, I need 15 more years because he had started this business with the intention in Baltimore, with the intention of selling it to African-American people who did laborious work in the fields in the South. And when he put his refrigeration plant uh, in North Carolina, they burned it down to the ground and spray painted on the side. We don't want your nigger sausage here. <laughs> you know. Wow. So rather than eat it, you know, and this is trailing along with his you know, the, what he faced at Ohio State and not living on the campus and dealing with his, his father. And, and, and then he loved his mother and his grandmother and he was trying to send money back home to take away that guilt. You know, he decided just rather than serve the Southern states, he would move it North. So he moved to Philadelphia and Wilmington, Delaware, New Jersey, New York, all the way up to Connecticut, up and down the seaboard, the Northeastern seaboard and as it turned out by the time it had hit new york city people there were so many more people and there were so many people who liked the sausage and then uh, domino pizza and pizza hut started using the sausage and so his money began to just flourish and then he had offices in new york philadelphia connecticut um so he was roll you know he was rolling in the hot sauce so when he was dying with this parkinson in mind that i'm 30 years younger never knowing anything about senior citizen or gerontology or old age or old age ailments, he says, I need 15 more years. So I was struggling to come up with a compassionate uh, response to him needing 15 more years, knowing that he was going to die. So I say, well, I'll write you, you'll live forever. I mean, that was just something I flipped off the top of my head because I didn't know how to console this man who's dying, who's who's not ready to die. He's, he's married to his business and so forth and so forth. And um, so I continued my career. And as I said earlier, I worked for 42. When I retired in 2012, 
The first thing I did to write Henry's book, because I had promised this, you know, elderly man, and it stayed in the back of my head, but I was going to school myself. That was when I was going to Loyola and Hopkins and back to Maryland, where G trying to find my career. I didn't have time to write a book. I didn't know how to write a book. So this was my absolute first project. And, and I, I, I'm really, I'm really quite, um, it's called business for man first. And the reason why, uh, I gave it that title is because when I was interviewing research for the book, um, he had become so successful in the Baltimore area and had adopted, uh, Baltimore as his home. And at the time, our mayor was William Donald Schaefer, who subsequently became the governor of the state. And he recruited Henry to work in the Baltimore City Council in District 2. And um, so that snowballed into him having an elected position in, in Baltimore City. And they asked him, uh, would he run for mayor? And so um, I asked him if he would ever consider running for mayor, which is what the city wanted him to do because he had name recognition and notoriety. He had the money and he had the success and he had successful build business. He was, and you know, he had worked with all types of charitable organizations, the NAACP and the Urban League and the United Negro College Fund. And he was on all of these boards and he was chairman and he was on and on and on. Um, but he said, no, he didn't want to be he said, Maurice, no, I don't want to be mayor. He said, I really didn't want to be city council. He said, I am a businessman first. Mm. So that's what I gave the book title, Businessman First. And he was the first African-American to ever be on the cover of News Business Week magazine. And so the cover title is they have his picture up there. And he was a very handsome man, very tall, big, athletic, uh, very robust and, um, you know, just, just a hot looking man. And, uh, but they described him as Negro man in business. And he wrote them back and told them that he was not a Negro man in business. He was a businessman who happened to be Negro. <laughs> you know, in that era, in that time, yeah. uh, like in my time, my birth certificate said that I was colored. But then we became, in the 50s, we became Negro. And then in the 60s, we became uh, Black and Proud with James Brown, Say It Louder, I'm Black and I'm Proud. And right. then, then we became Afro, and then we became African-American. So approximately our identity changed every 10 years for, mm. for about 50 years, you know, trying to get realigned people who, you know, had come from foreign soil who had no country uh, identification. So anyway, I wrote his book and um, I got reviews and, and I like it. And I think Henry would like it, uh, but it's, and uh, it's indexed and it has photographs of his wife and his children. Uh, but it, he subsequently divorced and, um, and lived single, but he wouldn't remarry again. Mm -hmm. And um, we were really, really good friends. And yet it was something strange in me that consider at my age at that time to consider somebody that old, which I considered right. old then, to be my friend. 
you know, I mean, he was a friend and he was a mentor and he was very kind and very generous and exposed me to all kinds of things. But um, so anyway, I wrote his book. And so that's book number one. <laughs> and let me ask you, when it comes to his mentorship, um, have you ever thought back on your life and wondered or thought about what it would have been like had you not met him, had you not had him as a mentor? Do you think you would have had the level of success that you've had or would you have gone down a different uh, career path or have you ever considered what what his mentorship really, really did for your life? Well, I well, Brian, I would say that it was extremely significant, um, his input, because if nothing else, he exposed me to groups and organization people that I never would have been exposed. To. But now that I'm, I have reached the age that he was when I met him, um, I have found that there have been a number of people in my life that I call defining people, people who have really made a difference in my life. And, you know, that concept for me came when Oprah Winfrey was working in Baltimore uh, with a co-host called uh, Richard's Chair, and this was in the 90s, and email was just becoming popular at that point mm -hmm. in time. And she said that the email that she had received most frequently was, how was she as an African-American woman who would have been considered ugly by Vanity Fair? She was, you know, she was raised by a single parent. She had been sexually molested by an uncle, a family member, um, and she wasn't considered beautiful. I mean, how does a person like that go from extreme poverty and harsh condition to becoming the first African-American woman billionaires? You know, I mean, how yeah. do you do that? And so she said it was because of mentors. And she said, we're gonna go, she's saying this on television, on the TV show. And she says, we're gonna go to a station break. And I want you to get a, the listener, listening audience to get a paper and pencil and come back. And uh, we're gonna do a little exercise. So when we came back, when she came back from station break, um, she opened up the stage and she brought in all of these African-American women, Maya Angelou, Toni Morrison, Terry McMillan, Tony, uh, Terry McMillan and, and other African-American women who were also struggling. Mm -hmm. um, and she said, these are my 10 defining people. And they were all African-American women were authors or writers or hosts and that type of thing. So, I mean, this is a long answer to your question, but I think Henry's contribution to my life um, was extremely significant and it was like more like a building block to the next person who helped me, mm. the next person who helped me, to the next person who helped me. And, and those people uh, in this exercise that Oprah did, she says, I want the listening audience to take a pencil and paper and write down Ten, the names of 10 people that you think that have been most influential in your life. And she said, it may be your mother and father, but it may not. It may be a school teacher, a friend, a neighbor down the street, a librarian, but just write the 10 names down. And um, she said, and what she did is with her defining people, she said once a month, they got together and communicated with each other about the ups and downs of their career, the trials and tribulations that they were having. So I, I just feel that Henry was extremely significant in my life. 
Um, and now that I'm this age, I've not only had Henry at the beginning, but I've had other people, you know, from my parents to high school to college that I consider defining people. And I list them. I acknowledge them in this book. You know, I, I acknowledge those those individuals. And um, and now that I'm this age, I have more than 10 defining people. But I but again, to answer your question, I think he was extremely significant, but he was just a part of subsequent steps that I needed to take in order to grow and flourish and so forth. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm long winded. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's good. No, I and I and I, I firmly believe in in mentors and having uh, people around you to really kind of help you get to that next level. And um, so, yeah, no, that that, that definitely uh, answered it. And and it kind of even went beyond because how you were saying he he kind of set the the foundation for mentors to come and, and right as you continued your growth so well you know and it's sort of like you i mean you uh, you know our conversation pre-interview uh was a magnetic conversation and i mean there were things exchanged in our and that conversation that were beneficial to me and i hope that there were some that were beneficial to you and so we have sure. people um, that we value and we treasure. We may not see them all the time or talk to them all the time, but you know that there's a good source of energy there. And if, and if you feel that you're going down, which I had many episodes of going down and backwards, um, there's somebody there to sort of lift you so that you can um, move on. <clears throat> another, another example with Henry that I thought that's in this book was that Henry wanted to play tennis. Well, you know, in that day and time, in 1916, the 20s and 30s, black men, and especially no big, heavy, burly black men were playing tennis, but Henry wanted to play tennis. He was excellent in tennis, and he was excellent in swimming, and uh, he bought a tennis racket, and his father was so angry that he took uh, a pen knife and cut the whole center of the tennis racket out to prevent his son from play because he just figured boys don't do that. You go play football, you know, you, you don't play any tennis, you don't go swimming, you know. Um, and in those days and times, you couldn't even get, we couldn't even get in the pool. I mean, it was just sort mm -hmm. of restricted to the pool if, you, if it wasn't a pool in your neighborhood, but Ohio State had one. So, you know, it's, it's those types of everyday instances that can pull our spirit down and you need someone to email or text or telephone or write, you know, to share that with so that you can move on. So I think mentoring is very important. And at some point in my life, I'd like to write a book. Um, and I and I don't feel that when I was quite young that I had that kind of guidance. Um, you know, my parents were survivors. You know, they people had, we had to work, you know, clean up the house, wash cars, clothes, polish furniture. You know, I mean, it was no recreation. You know, everything was about staying afloat, you know, um, educationally and with career. Yeah. And you kind of had a mixed, um, uh, some up and downs with your, with your parents, right? Like you didn't, uh, I think you had mentioned your, your mother was harsh at times. And um, so you kind of had to navigate that with everything else that you had going on. How did it, so how did, how did that, as you grew up uh, childhood on, I mean, how, how did your parents, um good and bad that that we and we all go through it with our parents but how 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 were they 
uh, an inspiration to you as you got into writing and school and all that good stuff? Well, you know, my second book, um, From Whence We Come, is sort of, I, I consider it a novel. It's been probably the most popular so far of my three books, but it's telling the story of this, the journey of this African-American boy, which is me, but I've made it in a fictionalized okay. uh, story because as a very young child, my mother used to say to me repeatedly, child, I never wanted to have you. And of course, as a child, as a young child, I could not comprehend what this mother is saying. Her child, I never wanted to have you. Um, you know, mother-child really is a very primal experience. And I think most children, even in the most adverse circumstances, want to have some type of positive relationship with their mother, even if the mother is, you know, less than perfect, you know. Um, and so I had a really hard time dealing with that. And then my my one brother and my one sister was seven and six years older than me. So there was a huge gap, um, but I never understood why she never, she always said throughout my entire life, she said, boy, you weren't supposed to be here, you know. And um, as I got older, I was able to understand her journey um, and her goals and dreams and desires that had been truncated because I was because she she and my father had to stay home with the children and not go outside of the work until the children were in first grade. So just as soon as she got the first two in school, she was ready to go to work. She want because like many people, but especially women in that day, she wanted a, you know, a washing machine and a mm -hmm. tapping range. And uh, she wanted a refrigerator and not an ice box. And she wanted a gas burning stove and not a wood burning stove and venetian blinds and curtains. And, you know, my dad wasn't making that kind of money. And then he didn't believe in materialism anyway, because he was Catholic, which was another huge interference in, in, in the upbringing. That church and family is another thing when, when parents are ingratiated in their particular faith uh, and want the children to adhere to it. So when I came along after she got my sister in first grade, then it meant she had to stay home for five more years. I mean, I didn't understand that when I was a child, but of course I understood it as I got older, but of course I had to work through this whole set of circumstances. And, you know, and by me being so young, uh, you know, when I was born, my sister and brother was six and seven. And when I was seven, my brother was 14. So it was no close integrated relationship with my siblings, you know, that you're playing right. games with or blocks with whatever kids do, siblings do when they're young. I didn't have any of that. So I was, you know, like the mothers, but then to make it worse, I identified in myself that I was gay. You know, I mean, I was a gay child and wanted to express myself this way. And of course, um, my, you know, that wasn't anything my mother wanted to do because, I mean, she wanted me to be because, I mean, she thought that I was tall and, my, and I think most mothers think that their sons are handsome and, you know, desirable to women. And then of course she belonged to the church and the ladies and the women's auxiliary had girls and they thought, well, they would say to my mother, well, your son seems so acceptable and well-mannered and I'd like him to date my son. And she didn't want to tell them, well, her son was 
gay, you yeah. know? So it put her in a box, being honest with her. And I'm still working with the fact that she didn't want to have me anyway. So she doesn't understand what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> so these kind of emotions sort of snowball. And then for me, rather than being further away from my mother, I always worked harder, closer to my mother because I wanted her to want me. I wanted, yeah. I wanted to be wanted. She's telling me she didn't, and please understand, she didn't beat me or whip me or burn me or I mean I had food clothing and shelter and things like that but it's the emotional abuse and some sometimes your emotions can destroy uh, your ambition and your drive your self-esteem your self-worth and you can't seem to pull yourself out of it and then we were Catholics my, my father was devout Catholic my mother was devout Methodist and Catholics could drink, but Methodists couldn't, and Catholics didn't believe in birth control, but Methodists did, and it was, you know, all of these dynamics, you know, as a part of the parent-child curriculum of how you raise a child, and so, I mean, it's, pe it's conflict with the parents, and then the pe <laughs> conflict with the children, then the child has his conflict, so then, you know, subsequently, you know, I go to school, and, you know, you're bullied in school, kids can be very cruel in school, you know, and mock and ridicule you. And, um, you know, some days, you know, you come home and you're looking for a friendly ear, you know, someone that you can tell your parents to. And of course, I could not tell my parents that I was gay. I mean, I, it, I, it was just taboo in both churches. It wasn't anything, you know, so I had to carry that piece of myself principally by myself. And I had to go internal and live by myself. So then when I got to be an adult, I enjoyed libations, shall we say. I enjoyed drinking. And then, boy, that seemed like it became uh, a nice sedative, reducing uh, these emotional issues because now, you know, I'm finished college, you have to go to work, and we were raised to grow up and birdie flies, flies out of the nest. You mm -hmm. know? So, you know, all of this is um, conquering Everest, you know, co conquering this because now I I'm independent. You know, I have a car note. I have an apartment. I have a job where I have to perform, but I haven't resolved with, with my mother, you know, her not wanting me. And I had not resolved my gayness with my mother and father at that point. So, you know, then I ended up doing yoga, then I did meditation and I went to swimming, you know, trying to, to work with myself to understand, right. get to the inner core of what. And so one day I had, um, you're too young to remember, but in the old days there were telephone booths and. Um, oh, I remember telephone. <laughs> I got in a telephone booth. I had just had it up to holding myself because I felt that I was being deceitful to my parents and my parents were good from, I mean, I was fed and clothed and watered. I mean, I wasn't sitting out on the street. I wasn't naked. I wasn't hungry. You know, I had a roof over my head. So, I mean, there were certain things you needed to be grateful for. I mean, that was what you yeah. taught in the church. And then you have to honor thy mother and father and sister and brother and treat others as others. And all of these messages that are coming into your head that don't fit your circumstances or what you're feeling inside. So I got in this telephone booth and I went home and, and um, I asked my dad answered the phone and I was glad about that. And I said, are both of you all going to be home? I said, stay home for the next hour. I'm coming out there. I have something I want to tell you. So I got in my little yellow Volkswagen, drove out to uh, Harford County where, 
my family's family home was. And I got in the living room and I told him, you know, I'm gay, you know, and of course my mother cried. And then I cried because my mother cried and oh, with the atropine. And I mean, I felt bad, you know, no kid wants to make the mother cry. Then she's feeling, she's saying I breastfed my children and I did, I thought I did everything right. And why did you have mm. to be this way? And so now the guilt is on me. You know, I mean, I'm trying to get it off, laying more on me. So in the middle of my mother and I carrying on, my dad is observing this. He says nothing for a period of time. And then when my mother winds down and I wind down and she's crying and I'm crying, my dad looks at my mother and said, Zelma, how did you not know? Maurice has always been like that. So, I mean, it was like, Oh, like the angel sang, you know, I mean, it's like, oh, my God, this is all of this, this energy, you know, I mean, and it was like, you know, he healed or started the healing process between my mother and father. And, he, you know, to say my dad, I mean, and what made it so spectacular, my dad was such a man of few words and but he was an African-American man. He had served in the military and you know, he, he was sort of the man's man type of thing. So mm. he was a very believable man. Plus he was very smart. And um, so he, he released it and made it all right for me, you know, who, who I had become, but I mean, those emotional things still stuck with me because, you know, then it's the issue of, do you have kids, you know, mm. not have kids, you know, who do you bring home and who do you not bring home? And, you know, so, you know, you have this whole, and then you're still, and in my case, still black. I mean, so you're dealing with the black, <laughs> right? you're dealing with the church issues and you have, and I remember driving to Washington, D.C. and going to Catholic University to the National Shrine, the Catholic, where American University is, to say confession to the priests, you know, to forgive me for my sins, because all of this stuff was considered a sin, you know, and I'm believing it. And then one day I had another wake up. I'm saying I'm kneeling on my praying to another human being. And I'm looking at all of the hypocrisy in the Catholic church. And I said, eh, I'm done with that. You know, so I mean, so when it goes back to the whole mentoring, you have these wake up moments, but you also have people in your life who sort of directly or indirectly mentor you or guide you or help you or say an encouraging word or turn on a light in your head to take you out of your sense of darkness. I mean, it wasn't the world's darkness. Everybody didn't respond to uh, religion and and race and orientation and life choices the way I did, but it just, my light felt dark. And um, Mm. over time, um, these people ended up turning a little bit more light and a little bit more light uh, until I developed into this superior person that you're looking at today. <laughs> you just you just said, "Hey, I I, I am who I am," and, and and that's that's it, right? I'm well, not you gonna... know what? You know, Brian. Another thing, you just hit another point. Now there was um, my dad was very much into classical music. He loved Broadway mm-hmm. plays and Broadway musicals, and so I um, I I had heard this play called La Cajal Fall. Um, and there's a song in this play that says, I am what I am. Uh, and that song almost immediately became my theme song. So it, you know, in addition to mentoring, sometimes cultural pop culture 
Broadway plays have a message or a, a song. You know, I remember when Diana Ross sang, I'm coming out. I want mm. the world to know, you know, uh, those kinds of, um, then you fall in love with a person and it's the wrong person. And then, but you, you know, you're in this emotional thing, you know, it's nobody else in the world, but this person and you've got to have this person and they're treating you like, you know what? Right. And, um, so you got to work through all of that. I'm in love. And, you know, and my mother would say, well, it's just puppy love. Get over it. But see that get over it. You know, I think um, it was like Nancy Reagan said, just say no to drugs. You know, right. Things, you know, some things you just don't get over easy and some things you just don't say no to without mm -hmm. more. I mean, it's not just uh, as easy as saying get over it. You know, like people say, well, just get over because they don't want to be bothered. You, you know, you need a little bit more undergirding to move. But anyway, that song, I Am What I Am from the Kaja Fall, Harvey Fires in the movie version of that. It was just absolutely fantastic. And if you haven't seen it, I urge you to look it up on Google. Okay. Um, uh, it's called the Kaja Fall and it's in movie form, Broadway. Play. And and so all this this part of your life you captured um, in, in your second book the the novel this is this what you dealt with during these times is that kind of what laid the foundation for that book or well you was know, it just well, an inspiration well, you, know, you know you're asking me really great questions and i'm sorry i'm so long-winded but you know i guess i'm still full of you know the emotion that surrounds yeah. my whole my entire life but um but yes this this was this book from whence we come is a novel that i wrote of my entire life um, with the characters of my mother and father and their respective roles in my life and my sister and brother and others and my two partners. I've had two long-term, 20 to 12 years. Um, both my partners are deceased now, but I didn't kill them. <laughs> okay. <laughs> we don't um, need that on top of everything else, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, and that was on top of it because, I mean, my sister, one that was my soulmate. I mean, that was, you know, and, you know, he had pancreatic cancer and, you know, in five weeks and six months, he was gone. But anyway, From Whence We Come, which is this book, um, is also uh, in, uh, an award winner too by the independent press, uh, is therapy, to answer your question. I wrote this book after I wrote the first book, and I felt a sense of accomplishment with that. Um, Someone says that everybody has a story, and we all do. And you and I shared a portion of our mm -hmm. stories when we had our pre-interview. Um, but the book was therapy for me. It was an opportunity to lay my entire life out before myself as honestly as I could do it, quiet and repose of my home without um, interference, you know, and I could give my honest in core feelings and put them down on paper. And because I had written the first book, um, I mean, there were sections when I wrote the book that I just broke down crying. I mean, I just cried when I wrote the book. I mean, there were so many scenes in there. Um, there I mean, there's a scene when I was uh, a young child where my brother uh, fighting my sister, I guess his siblings do, they were, they were always at each other, but I was much too young, to, you know, fighting with, and he was beating up on my sister. And so my sister had been boiling a pot of water on, in a saucepan on the top of the stove. Uh, we had a gas stove and so the water was boiling and my brother started attacking her. And so me, 
five or six or seven years old, got in between the two of them trying to protect my sister and the pot of water tips over and burns my back, just skulls, skulls the hell out. You know, so when I'm writing this in the book and thinking back about my relationship with my brother, for an example, um, you know, there are incidences that occur that you can't process all of those at the time because you know you're you got to go to school you got to make your lunch you got to take your bath you you know you have to go to bed early you have to do your homework and you don't process all of that so this book from whence we come just gave me an opportunity to process my life and you know where i've been and so and i can of the three my three books i considered the most popular because people have responded to it, but I don't do a ton of marketing on it. My writing is not for income per se. I mean, it's nice when people buy a copy of the book and they compliment me, but the money that I've spent in publishing, certainly uh, I'll never get back in royalty unless somebody <laughs> makes a movie out of it or something, which I'm not seeing <laughs> now, now that I'm 74 years old. But, uh, but, uh, the book was kind of good therapy for me. And so, it, I, so, and then I was able to free myself at another level. And if I feel like I want to have a pity party, all I have to do is the book and read it and then put it down and just, you know, just move on. Okay. That's, you know, um, I'm, I'm reading Barack Obama's book, uh, right now. And there's a section in there when his grandmother dies, you know, he's, he slips away from, uh, White House security and walking and and he's going back over his life in the back of an alley in Hawaii. He learns that what he's looking for in his past that was happy is no longer there, you know, and so he has this cathartic moment and he turns around and goes back. I mean, he writes this, he says, what I'm looking for is not there. So, I mean, the point being, you really, I, you really can't go back, uh, and get the love and comfort and nurturing and support replaced the neglect and the sad feelings and the tears and the fighting and the misunderstandings, um, all of the things that happen in your, in your home and in your school and in your church and in your emotions and in your sexual relationships. I shouldn't say sexual, but just relationships, period, because friends can be very disappointing too, that you have no sexual. I mean, your friends, in your youth can be very um, damaging to you because mm-hmm. sometimes they have jealousies or insecurities of their own that they project on you. And then you end up carrying their stuff in your head. So, yeah. you know, uh, releasing, you know, trying to, again, conquer Everett, um, your podcast, you know, these are, are stories that people have. And, you know, um, and when I look back, I feel like, the yoga, the therapy, the meditation, and none of that stuff really worked until we as individuals do our own work. And it's hard work. We have to work through this stuff ourselves. And it's nothing that mama and daddy and papa and sister and cousin, nothing, your spouse, your wife, your husband, your child, your lover. It's stuff that we have to work out. And I'm just so pleased with myself at this point that I was able to work through it without destroying myself, you know, because, you know, um, you know, people get addicted to drugs, they get alcohol, they get sex, they, you know, they get put out of their homes, they're runaway children, 
people become suicidal. I have a, friend, a former friend who runs a, a suicide hotline. And, um, you know, I mean, there are certain things that we need to go in a quiet place and work on. And, and one of my soothing places is a cruise, mm. <laughs> a cruise ship. Yeah. Um, to be out on the water and um, in the Atlantic or the Pacific or any ocean, really, and you just look up into the sky and there's thousands and thousands of stars. The water is, to me, it's just so soothing. And uh, actually, I wrote two of my books on world cruise. And um, I just took my laptop with me and I had this this time to myself and I was traveling alone and my partners were deceased. And, you know, that grief thing is something else, you know, grief. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there, I mean, just this month I've had four, five deaths and four people that I've known, none from COVID. Um, so anyway, that's how the second instance, it's just sort of Brian, my therapy. Um, it was a way of putting it down on paper and some people do it as poets. Um, and, and, and yoga and meditation and journaling and all of that is good, but I needed a complete spreadsheet right. of these things that had happened in my life. I needed, I needed to look at the whole thing to see what, you know, how this impacted this and this impacted that. And, and, you know, you know, with, you know, like with my mother, I, I came to terms with my mother when she, you know, after my dad had died and she I would go and take her for, I stayed a mother's boy my entire life. Always. I was always close to my mother. We went shopping and to lunch. And I mean, I used to tease her. I used after she got older and it's kind of accepted who I was and that I wasn't going to be other than who I was. You know, I said, you know, I was supposed to be your daughter, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, because shopping and lunch and things like that. I was just, yeah. um, but you know, when she would tell me her, her life story of her mother having died when she was seven, my fourth, um, you know, and her father was 15 years older than her mother when he had gotten married and he was 40 and she always thought he was old and looked like a grandfather. And then they were poor um, as well. And she, uh, he put her out to work, um, you know, before child labor laws were ever created. So she had been working as a child. And then when her mother died, she, she are, of the house and you know when you hear your parents story you know mm -hmm. i mean i think when we're young and we're children we're selfish and it's all about us you know it's all about me and my feeling and my pain but after i was able to process her pain i could understand why she didn't want to have the me i mean i could understand it under her circumstances but it didn't make me feel any better hearing it as a child i had to work my way through it but part of her release was her truth was to tell me, you know, you interrupted my career, you interrupted my going to work, and you, and you interrupted a part of my life that I wanted to accomplish other things. And God rest her soul, she was able to get the things that she wanted, diamond rings and mink coats and central air conditioning and a tap and range and ice box and a home custom built and things like that. She ended up getting them, but she wanted them sooner. So right. her, her childhood, had been truncated and I was responsible for slowing it down. And so when she, when I heard her story and it's much more to it, um, I began to understand and sympathize and empathize with the fact that I don't know if I could have lived her journey. I don't know if I could mm -hmm. have lived without my mother 
dying at age seven, I probably would have been dead by now because, I mean, she was a crutch for me. I mean, my mother, I mean, even though we had differences, that was my crutch because, you know, I mean, I find even in my love relationships, you know, the horizontal parts were just wonderful. But, you know, it's like I asked this girlfriend of mine in Seattle, not a lover girlfriend, I said, would you ever marry again? She says, what for? So I said to have sex. She says, and then what do you do with the other 23 hours? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, your right. relationships, at least my relationships didn't, didn't make me better. I mean, and my first partner was uh, African-American and my second partner was the European white. He was Dutch of Dutch descent. And I'm thinking these people are going to, heal me, my first partner, because he was nine years older. He had been in the military. I grew up in a rural area. He grew up in a city area. I'm thinking he's going to show me the ropes, bring me to a mature place and a sensible place and guide me in the right direction. Well, wrong. That yeah. didn't happen. <laughs> and, um, and then I almost feel sorry for my second partner, you know, the Dutch guy, because, um, I had not matured enough in myself to be with his level of maturity. I mean, mm -hmm. he, he was a little bit older, but he was far more exposed. I won't say worldly, but he was exposed to some things that I wasn't exposed to, you know, like opera and ballet. And mm -hmm. I mean, those were things that we didn't have that kind of discretionary money in our household to go to the opera and the ballet. I mean, we got to Broadway plays and to the movie, but you know, there were certain things that he was exposed to. And we traveled together. Both of my partners traveled together. So, you know, you get some and you in relationships and you lose some. And, you know, my philosophy, if you put it on the scales, if it's more good on the scale than bad, then you just try to stick with it and work it out. I did that for 22 years. It still didn't work out. <laughs> <laughs> did you when you um, when you met your um, your second partner, did you still have that mindset of, okay, he, he's going to help fix me or help get me where I'm, I'm not. Cause I, I admittedly, um, when you said that, cause I think of relationships and there's been often times where I've encountered someone and in my mind, I wasn't thinking so much that I love this person. I want to be with them as much as, oh, this person has something I don't have so they can help kind of fix that brokenness that I, I can't figure out how to fix. Were you um, looking at him in that same way as your, your first relationship or had you kind of worked that out within yourself and, and were able just to go into the relationship as a relationship and not so much as uh, a, um, a way to change? Well, with, with my first partner, though he was nine years older, yeah. I was the controlling. Okay. You know, I mean, I took care of everything. I took care of the budget, the cars, the barbershop, the doctor's appointments. I arranged everything. I took care of the house, had the house built. We built a house together. Um, we shared expenses 50-50 and we had, a, we had a, a nice life, but I feel like, you know, in every relationship, one person is stronger Mm -hmm. than the other person, you know, not, not physically stronger, but just stronger in terms of leading to a healthy relationship. And I thought that's where we were going. 
with my second part, but by the time I had served 22 years in that relationship, I was tired of charge. Okay. I mean, I was tired of being the one leading, you know, coming, you know, where do you want to eat dinner? Well, I don't care wherever you want to go, you know, well, where do you want to go on vacation? Well, wherever you want to go. So I ended up and, and in the beginning, that was fine because it was, you know, I wanted to do what I wanted to do. So, I mean, if he wanted to go and pay half, I mean, that was fine. But then, you know, you, you get to a point, you feel like, well, damn, the other person doesn't give a crap about what you do. All they're doing is just sort of tagging along with you, not putting in any ideas, any thought, any conception, you know, sort of emotionless and just going through mm. the motion. So after a while, I was sort of tired of troll, but in the beginning, I loved being. So that goes to show you that people change. So when I got mm. to my second relation, my second partner was controlling. Well, I figured, oh, happy day. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can, you look, if you want to run things, I took the back seat and mm. I let him do everything. But then eventually he got tired. You know, I mean, the same thing I right. got tired of because when he said, well, let's go to, you know, to Kennedy Center and get season tickets for the opera. And I would say, okay, you know, I mean, I didn't know anything about opera, didn't care. But if that's what he wanted, then that was fine with me because what I really want to be with him, I yeah. wanted to be in his company. And, um, and it, of course, it was a new experience. And so we had theater operative, the studio and the Kennedy Center and uh, the mechanic. And, you know, we traveled to places that I wouldn't necessarily have played. We went to national parks, you know, in California, which is where he was from. Um, things that I would never have done on my own. And with him deceased, I haven't been back, you know, I mean, because they just weren't things that I would have chosen. But one thing that I did once we had the discussion, he says, well, you know, I want you to participate in this more. So I says, well, I want to go on a cruise because that's what I, that's what I had done in my first relationship. Well, he had never been on a cruise. Well, we went on, he grunt, grunting. I, you know, I don't want to spend that kind of money. I don't think it's too confining. I don't want to be at sea that long. Well, anyway, to be short, we ended up going on two cruises a year for the balance of the whole relationship <laughs> because he went for, he took us for the anniversary and I took us for the winter, you know, so we ended, I mean, we were living large. I mean, because I mean, yeah. we had two two incomes, but, um, you know, he made me participate in some level in some form, whereas my previous partner, I didn't make him participate. So yes, there were things that I got from him, but the cracks in my soul, cracks in my soul, none of that filled in until I feel I had to fill those, do that work. And I bought so many self-improvement books, you know, how to be happy in the road less traveled and I read Carl Jung, Your Smile is, what was it, um, a famous book, and then Think and Grow Rich because money became a part of it. You know, then I decided I wanted to have discretionary money. So my partner taught me how to save better. I mean, in terms of investment and, and certificates and bonds and stock and those types of things. So, you know, economically, that part turned out beautifully. But it's like the beginning, you know, of this, this talk, you know, um, a lot of a lot of entered my life and um you know my mother used to teach you know maurice everybody has a message it's some somebody has something mm -hmm. good to say so you may not fully respect their entire person but listen and of course as you can probably tell listening was not my strong suit talking, <laughs> talking was my strong suit you know maybe nobody wants to hear but i'm going to talk anyway but um 
So, you know, I, 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 when I had, you know, I had people to help me get in my PhD program and help me to get out of it and, you know, help me in employment, mostly in employment and education. But, and there were years that I didn't think my education was going to pay off. I mean, I spent all of this money going to school. My parents paid for my undergraduate um, studies at under, uh, University of Maryland College Park. But I had to pay for Hopkins Loyola myself, and I was doing that on a credit card, buying tuition, pay, paying high interest rates to get the education. And then, it, then when I got my PhD, I got a fellowship. Um, one of my mentors, you know, encouraged me to do it. And at that point, I didn't feel like my education was paying for itself. So eventually, it did. Um, eventually, it did, and it paid off in spades. But you know, a lot of it, um, too, I think is built into your childhood. If your your parents are not, in, if parents are not inspiring to be something, you know, or to expose them to something or give them option, you know, take them places so that they can see things and compare things. But we were so, um, so limited resource with money, you know, that my parents, finances were, you know, for rent and for a car to go to work and food to put in the house to feed three children and health insurance and life insurance and an education fund to send them to school. We didn't, I mean, when I got to college in college, well, actually in high school, because I, um, you know, I, the schools were segregated where I went to. And um, uh, I was the only black person in my class of 460 seniors in 1965 that when I left the segregated school to go to the integrated school, there was a student parking lot that was bigger than the faculty parking lot. Well, I didn't have a car. You know, I mean, I went, I mean, I once I went to school, I mean, I wanted to be with the other cool kids that had cars, you know, but my parents didn't have that kind of, you know, those kind of resources. And, um, it, you know, and, and the, the language labs, you know, and the chemistry labs, all of that, those were supposed to be separate but equal. I can tell you they were not, they were separate, but they were not equal when right. I was school, you know. <laughs> so your lens, the way you look at the world becomes narrow. Your lens becomes the car that you drive, the size of the house that you have, you know, and hopefully you have a, a good partner or a good relation. That's, my parents were married for 62 years and that was a very stabilizing thought in my head that at least, I had both parents, even though they weren't happy every day. I mean, right. I had both of them in the in the same space, whereas many kids that I went to school with didn't didn't have that. Um, but when I um, but after our schools were integrated and they took us on field trips and to New York and uh, to see the Statue of Liberty and you know you wrote a paper after you know those were things I didn't get in the segregated school. Then you go to College Park to the, uh, not College Park, to, to Johns Hopkins and Loyola, and you get more experience, more staff development and training. Then I'm working, so it's staff development and training, and then eventually I got to do travel to all 50 states. Um, you know, so before long, I had a nice six-figure income, which I started at making $7,000 a year. You know, I mean, so to go from $7,000 a year to the mid-six-figure, not mid, but I mean, a six-figure salary, um, was a huge thing for me. I mean, that was conquering Everest. And it, I mean, because it was enough money to allow me to live the kind of life that I wanted to live with the fixed things like food, clothing, and shelter, and have some money to go 
to travel and buy books and go to plays and go to operas and go, you know, live a full life. So let's, let's talk about your third book. What's the third? Well, my third book <clears throat> is of time and spirit. It's my latest book. It also the press award and it's um, a tribute to my dad. And um, my dad and I almost never spoke a word in childhood. He was very devout, um, Catholic. Um, he came from a Catholic home where there were seven or eight children. Um, they went to church. They went to Novena. His father was Presbyterian. His mother was Catholic. They didn't, so she never used birth control. So it was a lot of children uh, running around. But this story is not about me. This is his journey of overcoming uh, overcoming his his level of poverty. He grew up in, in the city, um, in Baltimore City. And the Baltimore City, of course, like many cities and many places in the country, was, you know, segregated economically. You know, if you had money, then you could live in better. You know, my dad's dream, the only aspiration that he had as a child was to be a military officer. That was about all you could be if you didn't have any money. And um, there's a military academy, a black-run military academy, um, Virginia near Richmond or Powhatan. And uh, it's called St. Emma's Military Academy. So my dad was the second oldest child and he wanted to go to this military academy. But my uncle, which was his brother, oldest brother, the first child got to go to the school first. And the plan for my parents, his, his parents, was for him to go to Virginia from Baltimore uh, I don't even think they had a train then. I mean, I think they went in horse and buggy or something. But hmm. anyway, uh, out in the rural area to go to this school and, and the oldest one was supposed to secure financing and a loan and get good grades so that the second one, my father would have been the second one in line. To, but my uncle messed up the opportunity and the money and my dad couldn't go. So that was like a huge uh disappointment to my dad in his life because, you know, you know, at that point in time, he was born in 1919. Um, so that was a little after the turn of the century. Um, things just weren't good. You know, things weren't good. So, uh, and they went to Catholic school. So they were heavily, heavily, heavily indoctrinated in Catholicism. So then he went into the, the to the military thinking you know, the world is fair and the world is equal and believing in Catholicism and, you know, you're living in hell now and you're, when you die, you go to heaven. That's when, that's when you'll find your peace in the world. Um, so he went into the military, but again, think wanting to be an officer. And of course, a high school diploma then and from a Catholic school was like a college degree is now. Um, well, I mean, not now. I mean, now you need more than a college degree. I mean, years ago. I mean, that would have been adequate to, to go into the military and move up through the governmental ranks. And so he had superior ratings, superior health, superior everything, but they would never promote him. You know, they would never promote him. Uh, his his um, physical exams were all outstanding. Everybody rated him black and white you know, outstanding, but they just would, the State Department, which was called the War Department in those days, when, you know, you had to send the records, you know, to Washington to get final approval, they just wouldn't promote him. 
So then he got out of the army, and which at that time I became. So I guess my mother not only didn't want to have me, she was probably mad at him for getting her pregnant because he wanted to come out of the army. I don't know if all of that part of the story is. So anyway, he works, he comes out and he works in the government as a civilian. And he, uh, through trial and tribulation, works, works his way up uh, from a low rank to a high rank, uh, was a GS-13, which in the federal government at that time was almost unheard of for a black man. We grew up on military property and military housing. It was segregated housing, but it was military. And so it was really a cut above what would be considered public housing. I mean, we we were on a military base. We had a military bus to take the children to school. And um, we had a, a MP drove around the community every hour. So we had security. We lived somewhat in a bubble and um, so his field of specialization was engineering, electronic engineering. And, you know, he ended up having to go work with Raytheon and, and, uh, and IBM and uh, several other major private organizations. But he found that with accommodations like they, he would be the only black person in the class and um, they would put his room on the roof over to underneath the heliport. So when the helicopters landed, you know, he wouldn't be able to sleep. I mean, because he was doing high, highly technical work and he needed his rest in order to go through these staff development and trainings, but he did it, you know, I mean, he, he overcame. And then there were places that he went to in Massachusetts where uh, they would, he ended up having to stay in a private home of the sponsoring organization. Uh, in his and and the CEO's daughter's bedroom, uh, where it had a private bath, well, where all of the others who were in the training had to stay someplace else. So, you know, he went through all of these trials, and to me, it was uh, again the same like when you with my mother. Once you hear your parents' story, and all the hell they went, <laughs> then you kind of reduce the amount of whining that you do about yourself and try to have a bit of empathy for what they went through. And of course, in, in a lot of instances, I mean, and I told my parents this, I think they had children way too soon. But you know, you know, if you're born in the Catholic church and you're taught not to use birth control and you don't use any birth control, then a baby's gonna come. Right. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but he was too young. I mean, they were 20, but I mean, he hadn't had a full single life. He hadn't built a career. My mother hadn't built a career. Um, and then it's baby one and baby two. So then my mother took matters in her own hands. And then I came along, you know, she started using birth control because she wasn't, she didn't like being Catholic, though she had to convert to Catholicism when she married my dad, even though she was Methodist. And then, you know, she just said, well, if the Pope's not going to raise and pay for all of these children, I'm not happy. <laughs> Of them. So she stopped having them after me. She said, after you, she said, it's no more. She said, no more will be coming through here. Now, if you want more children, which my dad did, he wanted more. But my dad was non-materialistic and he didn't want material things like my mother wanted. Uh, and like many women, women of that generation, sort of the, you know, I love Lucy, Ozzy and Harriet, where the lady's standing up in an apron with a vacuum cleaner, being happy, running the vacuum cleaner. That was not my mother. 
because she had done it as a child. She didn't want to push any vacuum cleaner. She had already raised her sister and her brother. And I still have the straight razor where um, she saved my father. So my my father, during the episode that I previously told you in From Whence We Come, who barely said a word to me, uh, as I got older, found out he loved me unconditionally. And, um, but he never could say it. Right. And I was to hear it, but you know, as you get older and you get a little bit more clarity and you look back at the things that he did, and especially that incident uh, about my lifestyle, uh, my life choice of, well, it wasn't a life choice. I mean, I was just born that way, but he came through, I mean, his philosophy in the military, that if a man was deprived of a woman for any sustained period of time, you know, that he was gonna find release somewhere. I mean, it might right. be with a guy, it may not be with a guy, but he was gonna find some way of, you know, and that was what he saw in the military. So same sex sex to him didn't affect him as same sex sex did to my mother. And I was able to see through his work and his engagement he was recognized by two or three Maryland state governors, um, you know, for his work and was recognized by the Pentagon uh, for an invention that he created. Um, he worked with Toastmasters International Organ and rose in the ranks of that. He temporarily, I mean, for a brief period of time in retirement, he worked for H&R Block. So my dad, he worked with the NAACP, creating a chapter out in the county, rural county. So I was beginning as I matured to see the value that he had contributed to me as a person by not judging the person as harshly as I felt my mother did. Because sometimes with my mother, I felt that she loved you. But if you weren't doing what she said, then you felt you felt unloved. If you understand what I'm saying, I mean, yeah. spouses can do that too. I mean, sometimes you have a disagreement when you're not doing what, then you feel unloved, you know. And and this whole, uh, when Tina Turner sang this song, Love Being a, What's Love Got to Do With It? It's a secondhand emotion. I grew into believing that song is true. This love to, to heck with love. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> you need some money in here. You know, you need a job. You need to go, you need to have a passion about something. You need to heal yourself. You need to get on the road. And then, you know, if love comes, great. But love with, my mother's phrase with romance with no finance just doesn't. You know, you need some money to go along with the love in order for the love to flourish. <laughs> and, you know, that's why she wanted to go to work. I mean, she didn't expect yeah. my dad to do everything. But uh, on the other hand, she didn't want to sit back and be deprived of the portion of life that she could have lived. And so, the you know, the third book of Time and Spirit um, is... Uh, you know, it's a tribute to a man who said very little, but modeled great behavior and lived. Um, he was one of the purest uh, men that I know. And the other thing I'd like to add is that, you know, when I took psychology one in, in college, undergrad, uh, they say we had a section on relation. And they say that when we... Uh, start our first relationship, we end up mating or pairing or partnering with someone similar to one of our parents. I mean, they say that we generally marry a personality that's like your mother, if that was your favorite, or your father. 
And I had absolutely no relationship with my father as a child. And that's exactly who the personality type I marry in the first relationship. Kind of, it's no giving. It's just everything that I didn't get from my dad in childhood, I didn't get from my partner in adulthood, which made it wrong. I needed to have the right. other kind of person, you know. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I found that, you know, that uh, theory is true. And um, so with my second partner, I, my second partner was more of the type of personality of my mother, and that tended to work better for me neither one were perfect but neither was i you know i had my conscience it's imperfection but nothing is perfect so anyway this is man first is my first and whence we come is the second and of time and spirit is the third and my fourth book um is going to be based off of a proverb uh the child the child that stands adult supports his mother that mother is is a blessed mother when the child recognizes what the mother does mm -hmm. so it's a proverb i think i thought it was in the old testament somebody told but it doesn't matter i'll have that worked out by the time i get <laughs> it. but it's it's just the child that recognizes the work of the mother so that it's going to be a book somewhat but my mother had a number of aphorisms Neither of my parents were college graduates, but both of them hard. And in all three, three of the characters, they all rose very successful uh, levels from poverty, race, and sexual and social. Uh, so one, two, three. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. So yeah, Maurice, your story is is inspiring. It is um, fantastic just to listen to. Uh, there's just so many layers to it, and life <laughs> is something that I think uh, for me, it, you know, I could, I could take from this and kind of model some behaviors because, uh, you know, to, to everything that you've had to go through and your parents and it's just, um, I, you, had, you had mentioned a little bit ago that once you come to understand your parents' struggles, you know, you, you didn't say it quite this way, but the way I interpret it is you see how big their Everest was. It kind of makes yours look just a little bit smaller. Although you had to struggle and, and you had to, you still had to conquer yours, um, you learn to appreciate that struggle because the struggle before that was, you know, much greater. So I appreciate you being on the show and I uh, look forward to you know, I'll be keeping in touch. And when you get that fourth book out, we'll uh, maybe we'll have another conversation and and uh, share share a little more about that with everybody. So great. Well, I thank you very much, Brian, for having me. And, um, you know, I'm open and receptive to a non podcast communication, if you wish. Yeah, uh, you have all my information. And if you need that photograph, just let me know or anything else. And um, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I hope I didn't talk too much. But at least I filled in the hour substantially <laughs> yeah you know you 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 everything uh you, you had my attention the whole time so uh you can't go wrong with it. if you are enjoying the content being created on the conquering everest podcast please consider a donation your donation will help this podcast continue to grow and reach more listeners thank you for your support and as always aim high be courageous and you will do amazing things